Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, episode 70, Spain again. Aside from a brief campaign in Liguria, the Italian theatre is now effectively over. After a series of disasters for Hannibal, the Mataras was the straw which broke the Carthaginian army's back. In late 207, Hannibal fled into Brutium, which is where he would hide, doing nothing throughout 206, and meaning that when Scipio Africanus was elected consul in 205, the war was ready to move to Africa. But this is really only half the story. Spain is where the real action in these years was happening. It is where Scipio gained his reputation before he was ready to face Hannibal. This is why I wanted to focus on the Italian theatre first. If anything, this podcast is covering overlooked aspects of a famous war, which is often horrendously oversimplified. In this simplified narrative, Hannibal wins big battles, gets chased around Italy for a few years while Scipio goes to Spain, then there is the big finale in Africa. If you, dear listener, remember anything about this podcast in 10 years' time, I hope it is that you think that those years when Hannibal and the Romans are fighting in Italy are tremendously interesting. The slow grind the Romans fought against the Carthaginians, slowly pushing Hannibal further and further south, is what won them the war as much as any of the big battles. But now we have covered this, it is time to get into the more famous stuff. So, just where were we when we left things in Spain back in episode 53? Well, the two Roman commanders, Publius and Gnaeus Scipio, had just been killed. It looked very likely that the Carthaginians would sweep north, across the river Ebro, and into Italy, being led by the trifecta of commanders, Hasdrubal Gisco, Hasdrubal Barker, and Margo Barker. To keep things simple, these three shall be known as Gisco, Hasdrubal, and Margo, respectively. This would have happened were it not for Lucius Marcius, Marcius managed to regroup the shattered Roman forces and turn them back into an army. It was a small army and a weak army, but it was an army, and was something that the Carthaginians were not expecting to face. Marcius was able to fend off the Carthaginian force and even launch a counterattack on the Carthaginian camp, capturing it while the Carthaginian command was divided. And so, in 210, we rejoin the story. Things were quiet following these events for a while, as neither side was prepared to make a move. Following the capture of Capua, the Romans sent Nero, he who would be victorious in the Mataras along with Livius, to Spain to take over the command. He landed at Tarraco, the modern Tarragona, not too far from Barcelona. Quite quickly, Nero appeared to have an early success against the man he would defeat at that famous battle, Hasdrubal. Nero found Hasdrubal in a valley and was able to trap him. To have one of the three Carthaginian commanders trapped was a great position to be in. And so Nero was delighted when Hasdrubal sent messengers to him asking for a peace settlement. 
If Nero let him out of the valley alive, then he promised that he would abandon Spain. As with many things, the deal was too good to be true. That night, Hasdrubal moved his heavy infantry out of the valley, sneaking them away in small groups. They were not detected. The next day, Hasdrubal spent delaying the talks. He went but quibbled about every last detail. That night, he moved even more of his troops out. Things continued like this until only a few hundred men were left in the valley, and the morning was particularly misty. Hasdrubal went to Nero and said that they couldn't negotiate on this day as it was a sacred day for the Carthaginians and business was prohibited. Nero accepted this, not even remotely suspicious. Hasdrubal used the mist to escape with the last of his men, and when the sun burned through the mist just a few hours later, Nero realised what a huge mistake he'd made. Nero chased after Hasdrubal, offering him a full engagement, but the most he received was a couple of skirmishes. While a couple of victories had been achieved, the Spaniards were not keen to join the Romans, not surprising given the defeats which had been suffered. At Rome, they knew they needed to invest in Spain. Reinforcements were needed, and they needed a good commander, but no one was sure who. People talked about it, a few names were offered, but it was hoped that someone who was well qualified would have enough courage in themselves to put their name forward, but no one did. It got to the point where it was the day of the election, and the people went to the assembly, and everyone looked at everybody else, with no one offering themselves forward. The leading candidates glanced at each other, and the people began to murmur that there was no hope of salvaging the situation. At this point, an untested 24-year-old shouted that he would be a candidate. Everyone looked around to see who it was, and the man managed to find a spot of high ground so he could be seen in the crowd. It was Publius Cornelius Scipio, the son and nephew of the deceased commanders in Spain. The crowd erupted. It was only right that Scipio avenged the death of the Scipio brothers. He should go. And that is how Scipio was unanimously elected to the Spanish command. He was literally the only person who volunteered for the job. Within, well, moments, actually, of voting Scipio the command, the people began to think about what they'd just done. He was only 24. He was untested. He would have personal motivation rather than civic motivation in his mind. Was this really a sensible decision? Scipio realised what was going on, and so called an assembly to defend his appointment, and he managed to charm the population. In fact, I'm going to quote some of his habits from Livy, Book 26, Chapter 19. Quote, For Scipio was a remarkable man, not only by virtue of his actual attainments, he had also, from his early youth, practised their display by certain deliberative devices. For instance, he used to present most of his public actions as inspired by nocturnal visions or by warnings from heaven. Perhaps because he was himself of a superstitious turn of mind, 
perhaps to get his orders carried out promptly in the belief that they came from some sort of oracular response. Moreover, to prepare men's mind from the earliest days when he first came of age, he never performed any public or private business until he had first gone to the capital, where, taking his seat in the temple, he watched and waited, apart and usually alone. This habit continued throughout his life, confirmed in some men the belief, which may or may not have been deliberately spread, that he was a man of divine race, and received the old tale once told of Alexander the Great, and equally empty and absurd, that his conception came from the embraces of a huge snake, a monster that was often seen in his mother's bedroom, only to glide away when anyone came in. Scipio himself never said a word to diminish belief in these marvels. On the contrary, he tended to strengthen it by skilfully and deliberately refusing either to deny or openly to affirm their truth. Many other similar things, some true, some fictitious, had set the young Scipio on a sort of pinnacle above the heads of mere men, and that was the reason why the citizens of Rome entrusted the heavy burden of this important command to a man who had by no means reached full maturity. End quote. Along with 10,000 infantry, 1,000 cavalry, and the proprietor Marcus Junius Silanus, Scipio set off to Spain. They sailed over, making the journey so much easier than for the Carthaginians, and landed at Tarraco. Scipio spoke with the representatives of the Allies and managed to speak with the perfect mix of confidence and authority without straying into arrogance. He then moved on to the Allied commanders, and finally the army's winter camp. He congratulated the army on the fine job they had done, keeping the Carthaginians south of the Ebro and protecting the Allies. He kept Marcius with him, and Solanus took the command of Nero. The Carthaginians were settling into their own winter camps. Gisco based himself on the Atlantic coast, Margo in the interior, and Hasdrubal near Saguntum. This was the campaigning season of 210. Once the spring of 209 arrived, Scipio was ready for things to get going. He brought together his troops at Tarraco and prepared his troops for what they must do, advance south into Spain and defeat the Carthaginians in their own land. If they wanted to win, they would have to go a step beyond keeping the Carthaginians penned in Spain. They would need to push them out. He left Solanus with a guard of 3,000 infantry and 300 cavalry, while he advanced beyond the river with 25,000 infantry and 2,500 cavalry, with their destination a secret. Some of his commanders wanted Scipio to attack the nearest of the three Carthaginian armies, but were quite nervous about this plan. They feared that if they attacked one of them, then all the Carthaginian armies would converge on them and they would be vastly outnumbered. But this was not what Scipio was thinking. In fact, only two people were aware of just what the plan was. Scipio and Gaius Lilius. Now, Lilius is a name that Livy just sort of throws into the narrative, but in Polybius we find out a great deal more about him. He was a friend of Scipio from childhood, but 
what I assume he means is late teenage years, as Scipio and Lilius were from very different backgrounds. Scipio was from a noble family, a pedigree Lilius does not seem to have had. It's quite likely that the two met in the army and became firm friends, serving together under Scipio's father at the Battle of the Trebia. It was a friendship which lasted, and is how Lilius found himself commanding the navy in the Siberian campaign. As Scipio led the army, Lilius would lead the fleet. Scipio wanted to take the initiative in the Spanish theatre, and he certainly would do just that. Where Scipio was going was the Carthaginian capital in Spain, the home of their equipment and hostages, and probably the best harbour on the Spanish coast. Seven days after leaving the Ebro, Scipio and Lilius simultaneously arrived at their destination, New Carthage. This is a battle which we will begin to discuss next time. I'll just mention before I do the usual plugs that I'm quite sure that all this is happening in 209, but it is just a bit possible that it could be 2010. Chronologies don't match up sometimes. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please visit the website, where you can find a new feature. I'm always looking for stuff to add to the website, and so on Fridays, before releasing an episode of either Hannibal or Arab Spring, I'm going to post a bit of the script up there, at least for the next month or so, to give you a bit of a preview of, well, what a script's like, and if you just can't wait for the episode, because I know you will spend your week in misery waiting for Monday morning when you can listen to my sultry tones. Also, if you subscribe on iTunes, please leave a review. It is one of the best ways to bump the show up the charts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks for the Battle of New Carthage. <laughs>